Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes. Written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 7. Anonymity. Chapter 36. Thursday afternoon. Twelve hours later, I'm sitting in the hotel room, staring at my laptop screen. I've downloaded the cube source code from its GitHub repository and have spent the last couple of hours going through it, line by line. Since the code was first published a decade ago, I know that thousands, probably tens of thousands, of coders have inspected it closely. Max thinks that there might be a weakness in it. How could all of these eyeballs have missed something? I rub my eyes in an attempt to get them to focus. I've been up for nearly 36 hours and it's beginning to catch up with me. I get up and make myself another cup of coffee. I drink it standing up, staring out of the window at the Thames. I find it hard to believe that I was actually swimming in it just 12 hours ago. It's hard to believe so many things right now. Buckeridge having been killed right in front of us, being top of that particular list. I wonder what Max, Mina and Pfizer are going through right now. Christoph showed little in the way of mercy with me, and I doubt he'll show much with them. I shudder as I imagine Max being tortured, or having to watch on as his wife and sister-in-law are. And just where to start about Nadia. I shake my head to clear these negative thoughts. I need to find the vulnerability in Cube. It's the only way that I can possibly help Max and the others. Nothing else will give me bargaining power with the Bratfer. The problem is that I'm stuck. All of the code implementing Cube that I've read up to now is cleanly written. It's been thoroughly commented, albeit in places rather idiosyncratically. There's a recipe for chicken soup embedded in the comments for one module and a couple of knock-knock jokes in another. The code layout is very tidy and consistent. Yomaz even specified precise coding guidelines for any open source developers working on the code. Error messages are clear and descriptive. There's even a solid logging infrastructure implemented, making it easy to keep track of what the software is doing. To give myself a break, I plug the memory stick that Buckeridge gave me into my laptop and browse the dump of the Typhoon database. Just as Buckeridge said, it consists of a list of various machine-type IDs, Ethernet, IPv4, v6, and other types of address, cross-referenced against particular user IDs, usually email addresses. It's a big file, with just over 500 million rows, and it's sobering to think that this might only represent a small fraction of the total database. Many of the email addresses are listed against multiple machine IDs, probably because the users own multiple devices, laptop, computer, tablet and smartphone typically, or because they're logged against multiple IP addresses. Maybe they've been logging in from a variety of public internet access points. I look through the whole database dump and find no reference to cube addresses. This, as Buckeridge remarked, is strange. The security agencies undoubtedly do know some of the addresses belonging to people they're monitoring, so why would they not be included? Maybe they don't need them to be in the database, 
I think to myself. Perhaps they have some other way of tracking the addresses. Maybe there's something in the code responsible for the ID generation. I take another look at the address generation source code. Once again, nothing stands out as being out of place. There's nothing like having to explain a problem to someone else in order to gain some fresh insight. I fire up my IM client and scan my list of contacts. Sure enough, I see him online. Carl Turner, a member of my team at the bank and one of the smartest people I know, Max accepted. I fire him a message. Are you available for a quick chat, I ask. He comes back immediately. Now? Sure. I push the video call button and within seconds, Carl's face appears on my screen. Judging from his background, Carl is working from home today. Tom, says Carl. I thought you were off work. Sick. Getting better all the time, I say. Although having swallowed more than a few mouthfuls of the Thames, I'm not taking my future health for granted. I want to ask you about a hypothetical scenario, I say. Oh, go ahead, grins Carl. I love hypotheticals. Suppose you wanted to add a super-secret, malevolent piece of code to an open-source software package, I say. How would you go about this? Interesting question, says Carl, scratching the back of his head. Open-source software? Definitely, I say. Open-source software licensed under the most open, permissive license you can think of. Anyone can do whatever they like with the source code. So I'm having to hide my code in plain sight, ponders Carl. Yes, I confirm. Any changes you make to the code are visible to everyone. Carl leans back in his seat, thinking hard. I can almost see the wheels in his brain whirring. How long does my secret function have to remain in the code, he asks. In perpetuity, I say, you want this backdoor to remain permanently in place. Is this open source project being properly maintained, asks Carl. Does it have a project lead looking at all code submissions? Do they run regression tests regularly? Are there comprehensive unit tests? Yes, to all of those, I say. Imagine that this is the best organized and maintained open source project in the world. The best in the history of software development. Challenging, muses Carl. Very challenging. Remember that quote about with enough eyeballs or bugs are shallow? I do, I say. So how would you go about fooling all of those eyeballs? Carl sits still for a second, then leans forward. Let's start by saying what I wouldn't do, he says. I wouldn't go in and add a mass of code all at once. Anyone looking at the code deltas would reject it out of hand. I'm going to have to be much more subtle than that. Possibly introduce the malicious code in stages over the course of several weeks if not months or years. Okay, I say, but what do you do to protect your changes from someone just looking through the entire source code? Carl ponders for a second or two. I'd look for somewhere in the code that's already complex, he says. 
perhaps a complicated multi-stage calculation or code where the execution jumps from place to place. Existing complexity gives me scope for adding my malicious changes, or at least jumps to them unnoticed. If I can't find such a place, then I first have to create one, perhaps under the guise of working on other planned-for features. Carl pauses to think some more, then continues. I'd want to make my changes look like an honest mistake. So if anyone did spot any part of my malevolent code, they'd think that it was a genuine programmer error. Perhaps forgetting to check a boundary condition, misuse of a pointer, or set the zero element of an array, something like that. That way, they might fix that part of the code, but not realize that there were other bits to fix as well. That would allow me to go later back in and find another part of the code to modify instead. He pauses to scratch his head. That's all I've got, he admits. Does any of this help you? Yes, it does, I say. You've been very helpful to me. Thank you. No worries, says Carl. See you when you're back in the office. We hang up, and I'm left to ponder his words. Chapter 37 Early Friday Morning It's now 3 a.m., and I'm still staring at my laptop's display. I've had my fair share of late nights, hunting down software bugs, but this feels very different due to all that is at stake. Max is relying on me to find something in the code that will give us bargaining power with both Kronos and the Bratva. In addition to the latest version of the source code, I've now downloaded the very first version that Mehmet Yilmaz published a decade or so ago. By comparing the two versions against each other, I want to identify code that has gone unchanged through all these years. This, I feel, is the code most likely to contain the covert malicious functionality. When I first do the comparison, I find no shared code. Doing a visual comparison of the two code bases side by side on the screen of my laptop, I realise that the code has had at least one refactoring. However, a lot of refactoring, changing variable names that they are more descriptive, for example, is largely cosmetic. It doesn't change the underlying logic of the code. So I run the code comparison again, this time ignoring aspects like variable names and the layout of the code. This time I do find code in common. It's still a relatively small amount, less than 10% of the overall code base, but a significant amount of it concerns the generation of cube addresses. A cube address is a long string of seemingly random characters that represent one of the two parties in a transaction. An address is derived from one of the encryption keys contained within a cube user's digital wallet. A fresh encryption key is selected for each transaction in order to prevent users being traced from one transaction to another. Cube addresses are expressed in base 58, a notation that uses all the alphanumeric characters except for the four which can be ambiguous when printed out in some typefaces, 0 and capital O, capital I and lowercase l. 
using base 58 thus helps to minimize the chances that a user will type in an address incorrectly. The essential aspect of an address is that it is unique. No two users of Cube should ever generate the same address. That's one of the reasons why the character format is so long. With 34 significant characters in a Cube address, the range of potential addresses is huge. Roughly 9 multiplied by 10 to the power of 59. That's more than enough IDs to assign a unique one to every single atom of the Sun. The code to generate an address is somewhat complex, so I draw a flowchart to keep track of what is going on. The algorithm starts by taking one of the public keys from the user's digital wallet and putting it through a hash function. This reduces the length of the key to a more manageable size. This hash value is then written onto the stack, which is essentially the computer's scratchpad for in-progress calculations. Using it, a checksum is generated, allowing the Cube software to easily validate whether a user has typed in an address correctly. The final step is to feed the hash value and the checksum together through a base58 converter function and a C character appended to the front. This generates the alphanumeric version of the address. This code has changed very little since the software was first released. The code is clean and tidy, and apparently bug-free. I guess that none of the programmer volunteers who took over maintenance of the code, once Mehmet Yilmaz became a recluse, have seen any need to change it. If it ain't broke, don't mess with it, appears to have been the overriding philosophy. I analyse the address generation code as it executes, stepping through it line by line using a debugger. I can see the contents of each of the variables in the code as well as all of the status values. As each function gets called, I inspect the contents of the variables being passed into it. Everything goes as expected until the preparation for the base58 conversion. I notice that the stack pointer for taking the hashed value off the stack is off by 6 bytes. That means that it's reading from 6 bytes lower on the stack. It will still read in 20 bytes, but only 14 of those will be the hashed value. So what else will it read in? What was placed on the stack before the address? I glance at the stack visualizer to see the answer displayed in hexadecimal. 5C, F9, 38, 99, D7, 86. The values seem familiar, but I can't think where I have seen them before. I get up and go to the bathroom. I scrub my face thoroughly with soap and water to revive me. As I'm doing this, I suddenly remember where I've seen those numbers before. I return to my laptop and open up the network configuration control panel. Sure enough, nestled amongst the configuration details are the exact same digits. The MAC address of my laptop's Wi-Fi card. MAC stands for Media Access Control. Every device, every desktop, laptop, computer, every smartphone, every tablet, everything in fact, 
that has a network interface for connecting to the internet has at least one. With almost 300 trillion possible combinations, MAC addresses can pretty much uniquely identify a device. I scanned through the source code to find out why the MAC address was on the stack. It doesn't take me long to find it. Among the software's many and decidedly verbose log messages is one that indicates successful activation of a network connection to the wider Cube community. The last part of the message is the MAC address of the interface used to make the connection. Bingo. The MAC address has been sandwiched between the remaining 14 bytes of the hashed public key and the four bytes of the checksum and fed into the base58 function. This function converts the data into a sequence of alphanumeric characters, but it also serves to hide the fact that six bytes are always the same. I quickly write a Python program to decode cube addresses. I run the code and input a couple of the cube addresses that I've used in recent transactions. My software reverses the base58 operation and then displays the key six bytes in the middle. Sure enough, it prints out the MAC address of my laptop. I try it out on an address that I used for a transaction on my band, and it displays the address of my late smashed device. The supposedly anonymous cube address is traceable. Chapter 38. Friday morning. Despite the elation of finding the tracking code, I soon succumbed to exhaustion. I managed to drag myself over to the bed and collapse onto it. I'm awoken a few hours later by sunlight shining through the window into my face. It's just past 9am. I realise that I'm famished. I haven't eaten in over 24 hours. I head downstairs and commandeer a large breakfast in the hotel's restaurant before it closes. Afterwards, I return to my room and review my discovery from the night before. I try typing a few more cube addresses into my new software, and each time a plausible-looking machine ID is produced. I then download a couple of pages of the cube ledger, containing in total about 10,000 transactions, and pipe the IDs into my program. Every one of the IDs produces a realistic machine ID. OK, I have enough evidence to support my claim. I ponder what to do next. I pace around my room but give up after a while. I decide to go for a run in nearby Battersea Park. I haven't worked out in over a week, so I figure that the jog will do me good. And I always think better during, and especially after, some physical exertion. Before I leave, I scan the major news websites for any mention of the events yesterday. But there's nothing. The Bratva's cleanup does indeed appear to have been most thorough, and Nadia's claim to have knocked out all the CCTV cameras within a mile of Tower Bridge seems to have been genuine. I leave the hotel wearing a set of shorts and t-shirt borrowed from the front desk and head over to Battersea Park. It's a cold, clear day. The sun is shining thinly through the leafless trees. I arrive at the park and opt to plod around the carriage drive circuit. 
It's a wide, tarmacked path with lots of room for runners and walkers. I keep to the inside, jogging along slowly but steadily, as a succession of faster and fitter runners overtake me. As I run, I ponder my next move. That there's malicious code in the cube source is now beyond question. I have the debug logs, the source code itself, and the test results to prove this. But what's my next step? How do I get the attention of the Cronus group with this? And how can I use it to save Max, Phaser, and Mina? As my feet pound the path, I realise that a half-formed thought has been nagging at the back of my mind for a while. It takes me a few moments to figure out what it is. The theft of my laptop. Although Inspector Lister thinks that it was an opportunistic theft, I'm not entirely convinced. I think through the alternative explanations. If it was a deliberate theft, who could have taken it? The Bratva? That seems unlikely now, in the light of Nadia being a double agent all along. When I first encountered her in Iceland, she didn't know what Max looked like. She seemed genuinely surprised when I told her that Max had gone missing. To snatch the laptop would have required far more knowledge about Max than Nadia and the Bratva had at that moment. So if not them, who? I continue to jog along the path. Despite the cold of the day, my t-shirt is now covered in sweat and my breath comes in short, ragged pants. Step, step, step. Could Max have taken my laptop? Unlikely. He'd left San Francisco several days earlier in order to stay at the cyber commune. He was taking great efforts to remain undetected. Just look at the lengths we had had to go to in order to track him down in Toronto. So it would seem unlikely that he would risk everything to steal my laptop from a public place right in front of us. So if not Max, who? Step. Step, 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 step. A thought forms in my mind. Kronos. Max had said that someone from Kronos was aware that he was investigating them. They tried to get him to stop. Could they have had someone following me and Phaser? Someone who, when they saw the chance, grabbed my laptop? But even if Kronos did take my laptop, why? Were they looking for information about Max's investigations? If so, they'd have been able to determine that I knew little at that stage. Unlike Max, I don't encrypt my whole disk. It would have been easy for them to look at the entire contents, including my files, email, photos, etc. So why return it? If they'd looked through the contents and found nothing, why not destroy it? Why take the risk of having left forensic clues that the police could find. Step, step, step. Or perhaps they weren't looking for information. Step, step, stop. I skid to a halt as a new idea forms in my brain. What if they didn't want to take something from the laptop, but instead wanted to put something in? I turn around and sprint back to the hotel. Chapter 39 I dash back to my room as quick as I can. There, I wake up my laptop and fire up a terminal window. I'm going deep into the bowels of the software of my machine, 
places where a GUI cannot help me. I looked through the multitude of system directories, looking for signs of modification. I look at the sizes of the system files and the dates on which they were last updated. After an hour, I give up on this. Everything checks out. To all intents and purposes, the operating system running on my laptop today is the same as when I first arrived in San Francisco all those weeks ago. Deep down, I know that this was always likely to be a fruitless exercise. Anyone skilled in the art of spyware is going to be capable of making whatever modifications they want without leaving traces behind. I'm suspecting that I may be up against a rootkit, stealth software intended to hide the nature of its true function from all normal forms of detection. But I'm not out of ideas. I grab my jacket and head out. One hour later, I return with three purchases. The first of these is a brand new PC laptop, which I quickly set up. However, the operating system pre-installed on it is of little use to me. It's far too locked down. I download a popular variant of the Linux operating system onto the second of my purchases, a memory stick, and then use it to re-image the laptop. Finally, I download and install a few favourite software tools. With the PC now configured exactly as I want it, I use it to host a new Wi-Fi network. I then have my old laptop join it. This means that all of its traffic going to and from the internet is being directed through the new PC. I load up some network packet sniffer software on the new PC and look at the data packets that my laptop is sending out to the internet. I then proceed to carefully, one by one, close all the applications running on the laptop, web browser, email client, etc. In theory, this should reduce the amount of traffic flowing to and from the network substantially. Except it doesn't. Despite all the applications having been closed, I still see lots of outbound packets being sent. What are they and what software is creating them? I look at the payloads of a few of the packets. It's all gibberish. Might the packets be encrypted? It's unlikely that I'll be able to decode them. However, the headers of the packets must be unencrypted, as otherwise the routers would be unable to process them. Might the headers tell me something? I look for the destination IP address within the packets, then realise that they are all different. I try doing a reverse lookup on a couple of them, but they tell me nothing. The packets are probably being sent to proxy servers, who then forward them on to some final destination. But what kind of data is being sent? Whatever it is, it's a steady stream, with many packets being sent every second. What sort of data transmission would be so consistent? How about? On a whim, I reach over to the laptop and put a piece of masking tape over the webcam. As soon as I do this, the rate of transmission of the packets more than halves. Interesting. I go over to the clock radio in the room and turn it on. I find a music station. As with all clock radios, the sound's a bit tinny, but it's adequate for my purposes. I turn the volume up to near maximum. 
The rate of packet transmission increases, not by a huge amount, but enough to be noticeable. I turn off the radio, and the rate drops again. I pull the masking tape from the webcam, and the transmission rate goes back up to the original level. I turn the radio back on, and the rate increases again. I close the lid of the laptop, putting it to sleep. This causes the packet rate to drop, but not stop altogether. The sleep function on the laptop must have been suppressed or modified so that the machine can continue to relay audio. Clever. Very clever. I open the lid of the computer again, and this time select the option to power it down. After a few seconds of whirring, the laptop goes silent. Finally, the packet rate drops to zero. Well, at least the hackers weren't able to subvert the shutdown functionality. I turn the radio off once more and go into the bathroom of the hotel room to think. It's clear that very high-quality spyware has been loaded onto the machine, spyware that transmits audio and video. The webcam has an activity light that is meant to glow when the camera is active, but somehow the software has circumvented this. All of this means that ever since the laptop was returned to us, Someone has been able to listen into every conversation we've had in the vicinity of the machine. I think back over all the discussions that Nadia, Faiza and I have had with my machine near us. Any or all of those conversations may have been overheard. A burst of anger grows within me. I'm annoyed at the intrusion into our privacy. Then I remember that I'd taken the laptop with me on a couple of the nights that Nadia and I spent together, and my anger turns to embarrassment. Someone, somewhere, has a couple of extremely explicit videos involving me. I take a deep breath and fight hard to push the emotions back. There's a way that I can use this discovery to my immediate advantage. I go back into the room and find a large piece of paper and a pen. I write a message in big letters on the paper, and then get a piece of sticky tape and fix it to the chair in front of the desk. I then power my laptop back up, and angle it so that the webcam is looking straight at the piece of paper. I look at the clock. It's 5pm, and I'm famished. Time to get something to eat. I grab my coat and head out. On the paper... Two things are written. There are tracking IDs in all cube addresses, is the first. The other is the phone number of my new pay-as-you-go mobile, my third purchase of the trip. Chapter 40, Saturday Evening I carefully navigate my rental car along the roads leading out of Atlanta International Airport and then head southwest on Highway 85 into rural Georgia. Within an hour, I'm off the highway and driving along a small road, dense forest on either side of me. My new phone had rung within half an hour of my pinning the message up. A synthesized male voice gave me an address outside of Atlanta and informed me that I should be there no later than 9pm on Saturday. Bring your evidence, the voice commanded just before the line went dead. There was no CLI, 
so I couldn't call back. I saw little option but to comply. I booked myself another transatlantic flight and spent most of Saturday crossing the Atlantic again. I arrive at the address, five miles outside the small town of Newnan, a little after seven in the evening. It's a modern three-storey office building, set rather incongruously amongst the trees. A large sign on the side of the building says RS Inc. I smile at the size of the company's name. No British company would dream of calling itself that. Night has long since fallen and everything is very quiet. The building is dark, save for a few lights coming from the top floor. There is only one other vehicle in the parking lot. As I walk from the car to the building, I remind myself not to get angry with whoever I'm about to meet. While it's tempting to shout and swear at them for having hacked my computer and invading my privacy, such actions are not going to help rescue Max, Faser and Mina. I need to keep calm and focus on getting the message across that there are major problems within Cube. I try the door, but it's locked. I press the intercom button and wait. And wait. Eventually, a male voice answers. I'll be with you right quick. I wait some more. An elevator door opens, spilling light into the dark foyer. From inside emerges a man, small and balding, dressed in jeans and checked shirt. He walks over to the door and unlocks it. Then he opens it. Welcome, he says. Thank you for coming all the way out here. My name's Chuck. Chuck Regan. He speaks with a strong southern accent. Ah, the R in Kronos. He too was in the restaurant photo. He had a full head of hair back then, but there's no mistaking him. We shake hands and he leads me into the building. Welcome to my company, Regan says, gesturing all around. Very nice, I say. What does your company do exactly? Regan doesn't answer. I decide not to repeat my question. We pass the reception desk, unoccupied. The visitor book is open on the desk. Regan coughs slightly. Uh, given the delicate nature of your visit, he says, it's probably better if you don't sign in. I nod in agreement. We take the elevator up to the top floor of the building. The executive offices are located here. Large, glass-walled affairs with minimalist furniture in them. All are dark, except for the one labelled CEO. He leads me down a short corridor and into a conference room. The room is dominated by a large, round wooden table. The usual accessories of a desktop projector and a flipchart easel are also present. Regan sits down in a seat by the table and motions to me to take another. He sits still for a moment, considering, and then speaks. So, tell me about the vulnerability you found. It's in the address generation code, I explain. Do you know this part of the software? Regan shakes his head. Only indirectly. I worked on some of the other modules, he says. You'll have to show me. I pull out my laptop, my new one, 
I transferred my full programming environment across to it on the flight over from England and fire up the debugger. I walk Reagan through the code step by step. Regan watches intently, leaning forward in his seat to see the screen of my laptop better, asking questions as I go. Judging from the questions he asks, there's no doubt that he's an extremely experienced programmer. Nothing I say to him has to be explained twice. Finally, I'm done. Regan leans back in his seat. Well done, he says. You've definitely found malicious code. I'm very impressed. How long did it take you? Not that long, I answer. My friend, Max Whitting, did most of the groundwork. It was he who pointed me in the right direction. All I had to do then was look carefully. Regan strokes his chin, pondering. I see, he says. And does anyone else know about this? I shake my head. And where is your friend now? asks Regan. That's a big part of why I'm here, I explain. Max, his wife and her sister have been kidnapped by members of the Russian Mafia. They've killed already, and I'm sure that they'll murder them too if we don't find a way to release them. I need your help. Regan stands up. Gee, that's quite a situation you have there. Let me see what I can do. I'm fixing to go talk with the others. Wait here. He leaves the conference room, closing the door behind him. I sit there, puzzled. Fixing? That expression, strange as it is to my British ears, rings a bell somewhere. I type fixing into the search utility on my laptop. The machine chugs away for a second and then comes back with just one match. It's in the cube source code. I swing over to my development environment and look for the text. Sure enough, fixing is there in the actual source code, part of a multi-line comment. A multi-line comment within the module dealing with ID generation. A chill sweeps through my body. Does this mean Regan worked on this source file? despite him claiming that he hadn't? I rise from my seat and walk over to the door. Very quietly and carefully, I open it a fraction and listen. I can hear Regan's voice somewhere down the corridor. I edge out of the door and creep along the corridor towards the sound. When I get to the corner, I peer round. Through the glass wall, I see that Regan is in his office, talking on his mobile phone, with his back to me. The door to the office is open, so I edge closer, trying to get within earshot. He's found the code we planted, I hear Regan say. Walk me through all of it, step by step in the debugger. He pauses, listening to whoever is on the other end of the call, nodding periodically. Then, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. He turns and looks down at something. I edge further round so that I can get sight of whatever he's looking at. There's a handgun lying on the desk with an open box of ammunition beside it. Regan starts to turn around and I duck back around the corner again before he catches sight of me. 
I head back to the meeting room and close the door again. I take a couple of deep breaths and size up my escape options. Nothing springs to mind. To get to the lift, I'd have to go right past Reagan's office. The other end of the corridor is a dead end. The windows to the conference room are all sealed, triple glazed affairs. I doubt I could break one of them, even if I threw a chair at it. Besides, as I'm three stories up, I'd break both my legs, and probably more, jumping. With no practical way of escape, I decide that I'm going to have to fight my way out. I grab the heavy fire extinguisher in the corner of the meeting room and stand behind the door. I wait. I hear footsteps coming down the corridor. The door opens and Regan walks in. The gun is in his right hand. As I'm standing out of sight behind him, Regan is momentarily puzzled as to why the room appears to be empty. I take this opportunity to jump at him and strike at his head with the extinguisher. Regan spots me coming at the very last second and manages to duck. The extinguisher misses and he knocks it out of my hands with his free arm. I jump onto him and try to wrest the gun out of his hand. We stagger around the room, me on his back, Regan attempting to throw me off so that he can get a clear shot at me. We barge into the table. I slam his gun arm down hard onto the table's surface, the weapon leaving a clear dent in the polished wood. Regan cries out in pain, but doesn't let go of the gun. He tries to elbow me in the face, but I manage to duck out of the way. Both of us now grapple for the gun. Regan grabs my jaw with his other hand and tries to stick his thumb into an eye socket. I scream in agony and let go of the gun. He pushes me back and I fall against the table. Now that he has controlled the gun, Regan raises it and points it at my head. Before he can shoot, however, I drive forward and grab hold of his gun arm, twisting his hand round. The gun goes off. Regan's body jerks uncontrollably and he collapses to the floor. The unmistakable smell of gunpowder fills the air. I look down at Regan. The gun is still in his hand, but there's a big red stain in the centre of his checked shirt. Regan's eyes are looking up at me, but I don't see any life in them. I drop the gun, kneel down and feel for a pulse. There isn't one. I've just killed another person. Okay, it was in self-defence, but it was still a killing. I feel my heart rate rise and my breathing become ragged. I realise just how close I came to being killed instead of him. I stagger over to the corner of the room, close my eyes and take a couple deep breaths. Finally, my pulse rate returns to normal and I can think straight again. I sit down on the floor and plan what to do next. Max's final words come back to me. Trust Collins. I know what I have to do. I go over to Reagan's body and feel in his pockets for his phone. I find it. I push the home button to wake it from sleep and it immediately challenges me to enter a six-digit passcode to unlock it. I don't have time to play guess the lock code, but I'm not put off. It's an older model smartphone. 
This means that its voice recognition software is probably not trained to respond to Reagan's voice only. I press and hold the home button. The phone chimes, indicating that it's ready for a voice command. Call Collins, I instruct. The digital assistant ponders for a moment. Then it asks, do you want to call him on his home, work or mobile number? Mobile, I answer. The line goes silent for a while, and then I hear a ringtone. After what seems a lifetime, the phone is answered. I hear a sleepy voice saying, Chuck, do you know what time it is? Why the devil are you calling me at this hour? The voice has a most definite British accent. This isn't Chuck, I say quickly. He's dead. He tried to kill me with a gun all because I know about the malicious code in Q. Malicious code? The voice responds, suddenly sounding much more awake. What do you mean? Every cube address contains the machine ID of the device that generated it, I respond. It's hidden in the address generation code module. It's been there right from the start. The voice is silent. I've been told I can trust you, I continue, so I'm calling you now to warn you about this code. A pause. Who is this calling? asks the voice. My name is Tom Jenkins, I reply. I'm from the UK. And where are you now? I'm in Georgia, I reply, at Chuck's offices. There's a long pause on the line. Then, I need to meet with you. As soon as possible, says the voice. You need to show me proof of all this. Return to the UK as quickly as you can. I will make arrangements for our meet-up in the meantime. What number can I contact you on? I give him the number of my new UK mobile. You'll be texted further instructions when you land back in Britain. Get back as soon as you can. The line goes dead. I quickly pack up my computer and head for the door. I don't have a moment to lose if I'm to arrive at the airport before the last of the evening's flights depart for Britain. However, as I leave the room, I turn around and take one last look back. Regan's lifeless body lies in the middle of the conference room floor, the blood from his chest staining the carpet all around him. On the wall behind him is a sign. It reads, please leave this room as you would expect to find it. Oops. Chapter 41. Late Saturday evening. It's not until the plane reaches cruising altitude that I begin to relax. After leaving the offices, I've raced back to Atlanta International Airport, dropped my rental car off and caught the last evening flight back to the UK. I'd stopped en route to the airport only once, pausing at an isolated bridge to drop Regan's phone and gun into a river. I changed into a spare set of clothes as well and buried my blood-splattered ones under a rock. As the adrenaline wears off from my mad dash to catch the flight, I find myself shaking uncontrollably, especially my hands. It takes all my concentration to avoid going into hyperventilation. The guy in the seat beside me gives me an unsympathetic glare as if to say, 
Don't you dare give me trouble tonight. Puts his eye mask on and turns up the volume of the music that he's listening to. I can't stop thinking about Regan and the fact that I'm now, technically, a killer. I keep replaying the incident in my mind, trying to figure out how I could have subdued him without actually killing him. Try as I might, I can't imagine how I would have achieved this. I have to keep reminding myself that Regan was intent on killing me, so my still being living and breathing is not a bad outcome. As soon as the drinks trolley comes round, I order a whisky to calm my nerves. The whisky has the soothing effect I'd hoped for, and I can feel my pulse rate steadily dropping. I stare out of the window. The plane's already out over the Atlantic, and there's nothing but blackness. Somehow, I find that comforting. As a kid, during nighttime flights, I'd pretend that I was travelling in a spacecraft, journeying to Mars, or a space station orbiting Jupiter. How I wish that I could get into a rocket now and escape all my troubles. I realise that, in my haste to leave, I likely left behind many traces of my visiting Regan's offices. The police will probably find my fingerprints on the table of the conference room. I'm sure I saw CCTV cameras around the entrance to the building, so there's likely video evidence of my visit as well. Was there a camera in the meeting room too? I trawl my memory, but can't recall having seen one. If not, the key piece of evidence that I could call on to support my claim of justifiable self-defence will be missing. The best I can probably hope for is that Regan's death isn't discovered until Monday morning. That gives me a little over 24 hours to get back to the UK, meet with Collins and work out some sort of deal to save Max and the others. That was episode 7 of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at kronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License.